Welcome to the Sisters Community Church podcast. There are many religions in the world. Is Christianity just another point of view? Well, in this episode, Pastor Steve Stratus continues our series in 1 John, where we pick it up in chapter 4. Let's listen. We've been in the book of uh, John, and and I hope some of you who are new, you will uh, come to the Welcome Center afterwards, and we can get to meet you. And if you have questions about our church, that would be great for us to be able to interact and get to know some of you. Um, and again, thanks, Vets. Uh, just want to encourage any of you, if you've never read, uh, if you've never read the book, uh, The Greatest Generation, just read it. It'll just move your heart. So we've been in the, uh, the epistle, 1 John. Uh, John, the apostle who wrote the Gospel of John, wrote three epistles. And uh, in this epistle, we started in August, so we've been at it about three months. And uh, what John is, is trying to teach us, what this epistle is trying to teach us, what John is suggesting, that as God's people, he wants us to have joy that is complete. Not a happiness that is based on certain circumstances or what happens, but a joy that is developed from the inside and expressed on the outside because John says we can have fellowship with God. And while we might say that pretty quickly, think about it for a moment, that we can have fellowship with God, that we can have intimacy with the God of the universe, the one who has created us and redeemed us and sustains us, the one who will ultimately restore our world and give us the opportunity to enjoy it as his, as his uh, intent really was. And John says the way that we can grow is that John says, you know, we saw him, we heard him and listened and touched him and he was real and that there was this objective reality to this person of Jesus who came in the incarnation, who demonstrated how man can live, and then who went to the cross and died the death that we should have died, and in resurrection demonstrates the life that we can live in him. John says, that's for us. And he says, I want you to experience that too. And so from chapter one, he continues to reiterate that. He says, you know, there's no darkness that when God came, he came to bring light, and in him there's no darkness. And if we don't love one another, we're not walking in the light. And so he continually says, and the way that we grow in this intimacy, he says there's three tests. There's the, the test of the conscience, the moral test, that as we grow in the word and we obey the word, we begin to develop this consciousness of God that I hope ultimately, while it begins with sort of a, a conscious way of approaching God, it becomes unconscious for us that we live without having to always plan and think it out, but it becomes a part of our life. And we get that through the word of God. And, and so when we think about that test, it's one that we constantly need to be giving to ourselves and asking ourselves, how did I do this week? And, and if I'm a three, how do I get to be a four? And the second test was the test of how do we love each other? Because over and over, John is going to tell us that loving one another is a way that we manifest who we are as children of God. So how are we doing in that category? Do we love those people we don't like? Do we love with those that we disagree with? Do we love those that are our enemies? Do we love like God loves? 
And the third one was the doctrinal test. How do we look at this thing we call the gospel? How do we learn and teach and allow it to become our way of living? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God. And so the word of God becomes the way that God directs us. And so now we come to, to uh, chapter four of this epistle. And, and I think part of what we've been learning is that John reiterates over and over again, we are children of God. Matter of fact, he starts it and then he ends it. And in, in 1 John 5, 19, he says, but we are children of God and the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. So the reality of what John has been communicating to us is that there is indeed a dichotomy. There is a difference. There is a reality to the fact that either we're living in submission to the Spirit of God or that there is a spirit in this world. And while we call, we're called to, to walk in the Spirit of God and we're called to walk in light and to let that light be the direction. And he says... Uh, Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, the God of this world, and he's not talking about the God we worship, he's talking about the evil, and he's talking about Satan, the devil. He says, the God of this world blinds the eyes of those that don't believe, lest the light of the gospel should shine unto them. And so there is this reality that I think it's important for us to not just simply have a belief system that doesn't recognize that there is also other belief systems. And they're not belief systems that honor Jesus or recognize the power of the Spirit or the reality of being confident in who we are in Christ. There's another belief system that wants to undermine all that God has done and undermine even the values and the virtues that we speak of. For it is motivated by jealousy and anger and pride. So when we come to this passage, let me read to you 1 John chapter 4, just these first 10 verses. It says, dear friends, and better translation is beloved because John wants us to continually know that we are loved. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how we can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is from God, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. 44 times in this epistle, five chapters, John uses the word world. That there is a viewpoint that this world has that John says is antichrist that John says is something less than the reality that we've been called to. And again, let me go back to verse 19 of chapter 5. But we are the children of God, he says, 
And with that comes this adoption, with that comes this assurance, with, with that comes this access to the Father, with that, with that comes all of the blessings and privilege of what it means to be in Christ. But there is another reality. And the challenge for most of us in this world, and for many religious people, is to bring clarity to what is the ultimate reality that God whoever he, she might be in the world of many religions, what is that ultimate reality? And so when, when John speaks of this, he says something very interesting. We'll come back to some of these, these verses. But he, he says to us that the reality of, of the world in which we live is, is, is divided. And he says in this verse, verse 1 and 2, that there are many false prophets and teachers that have gone out to teach. But then he says, so test every spirit. It's interesting that he doesn't say test every teacher and test every false prophet, but he says test every spirit because he wants to help us to understand that what we teach is motivated by a spirit. It's motivated by something that is spiritual because we all, all of humanity, are spiritual beings. We've been created in the image of God. That image is Father, Son, and Spirit. And therefore, there is this reality. And, and, and John says it over and over again, if we're born by the Spirit, then we indeed are children of God. So I want, you to, I want you to just hear what he's saying as we, we try to uh, address it because what John is saying here is there are all kinds of, if you will, religions out there. And each and every one of those religions has a belief system. What is religion? Religion is just our attempt to find answers to life's biggest questions, Right? And so we live in a world whereby many people, whether it's atheism or secular relativism or Buddhism or Hinduism or Mormonism or Christianity, all of those religions, so to speak, are trying to find answers to life's greatest questions. But the reality of it is that religion can be incredibly divisive. I mean, you hear that don't you? I mean, it's been happening for a long time, but certainly if you go back to uh, 9-11, I remember much of what was being communicated after the towers went down were people saying, it's religion and it's divisive, and when we get rid of religion, then our world can be at peace again. And so what John is not arguing against in terms of there are a lot of religions but he's helping us to understand the distinctives of the religion that you and I are here to worship. So when we think about religion per se, religion is many, many things, but one of the things most religions, and by nature of them, create this divisiveness, are about performing truth. So every religion holds on to a particular truth, and the followers of those particular types of religions with those particular truths 
go out to perform that truth, and in the performing of that truth, bring appeasement to the God who is the ultimate reality of their religion. You following me? So everybody has this belief system. And so whether you're an atheist, you might not say there's a God, but you have a belief system about the ultimate reality that you want to live, and that belief system motivates you to live a certain way. If you're a, if you're a Buddhist, you want to follow the eightfold path. If, if, you're, um, if you're religious, it's always about you doing something. And so people throughout history, at least certainly in the last hundred years, have tried to develop strategies to get rid of religion because religion is the source of much evil in our world. Now, I don't believe that, but I do believe if we look at religion certainly as nothing more than performing truth, then that performance of truth becomes a slippery slope to self-righteousness and judgmentalism and racism and bigotry and every other thing that we believe people fall short of when we ask them to perform the truth that we think is the ultimate truth. And so people have said, well, let's just get rid of religion. Well, how's that working? They tried to do it in China, and the indigenous church in China has exploded. What you read in the newspaper is not the China that is about God, about the the house churches, and having been in China a few times, uh, I remember one time going to a woman's house who lived in this um, area that was always under watch, and she was a Bible courier for all the indigenous churches, and her uh, house was probably maybe 20 by 10, and all of her walls were packed with commentaries and Bibles. And the church in China is growing and prospering. When we think about the church in Africa, they say that the church in Africa in the last maybe 50 years has now grown to 50% of those who live in Africa are followers of Christ. Look what's happened in Korea. They say 45, 50% of those who live there are now followers of Christ. And so getting rid of it is not an answer because when it is indeed this thing we call Christianity and we follow, it grows not on the basis of the performance of truth, but it grows on the basis of the performance of the Spirit working in people's lives. But another thing the world wants us to do, and we've heard this over and over again, they say, we don't mind if you're, if you're religious, but just keep it at home, right? If you keep your religion private, and you don't bring it into the public marketplace, then it's okay. But, but leave your biblical values, leave your virtues, leave your belief system. You know, leave it at home. And when you come to work, just let's develop a strategy for getting along, right? And so that sounds very noble, but that's impossible, because every human being has a belief system that they believe, if they keep, will bring them to that place of ultimate reality. And every one of them, and make no mistake, we've oftentimes heard all religions lead to the same place. That is absolutely a lie from the pit of hell. Religions don't have a lot of similarities. They have a lot of differences. 
And so when we talk about religion, we oftentimes want to know the particulars of every religion. If you've been in the business world, you oftentimes will hear people say, what is your value proposition? What's the, dis- the distinctives to your business that makes you unique and makes you different so that I would want to buy the product that you're selling from you instead of your competitor down the road? And that becomes key to understanding why we're even here because religion is so much more for us than showing up at church on Sunday morning or doing certain things that make us moral. What we, as John is saying, is there is a viewpoint, and might I say a religious viewpoint, that is all about performing certain truths that when we perform them, God becomes happy with us. But for most people, they never arrive because nobody ever lives out those truths. You and I have certain truths. Do you always live them out? Are you perfect at performing truth? Are you living it out in such a way that God would never be disappointed with you if his love for you was based on your performance? And so when we think about the world that we live in, they always want to sort of keep us out of the marketplace or they want to do away with it altogether. But they too in saying that, have a belief system on why they want to do that because they believe that their belief system is the one that's going to bring about peace on earth, goodwill towards men. But look at what happened in Germany. Look at what's happened in communist countries. Look at what happened with Pol Pot in Cambodia. Godless societies that have perpetrated evil and horror like no other culture or country or time period has ever done. So what makes us so different? Why do we think that our brand of religion is different? And I think that's exactly what what John is trying to tell us here. You know, because again, when we think about what John says, test the spirits, find out who they are, because there's many false prophets and teachers that have gone out. John Stott said something really interesting. He said, he said this. He says, still today there are many voices clamoring for our attention and many cults gaining widespread popular support. And then he says this. You must not believe religious diversity and differing views are merely cognitive an intellectual phenomenon. It's not because we're smarter than everybody else. It's not because we've sat down and evaluated doctrine and we've come up with a conclusion that this is the way that we want to live. Because every religion has its doctrine. Every religion has its smart people. And John says, don't be fooled that there's a spiritual reality out there that is arguing and wanting to blind your eyes and keep you from the truth. And so when we think that, listen, this is what a French philosopher said. Uh, her name was Simon Vey. She said, only, uh, has only one choice between, there's only one choice between God and idolatry. That's all. If one denies God, one is worshiping something or somethings in this world. 
in the belief that one sees them only as such things, things in this world. But in fact, unknown to oneself, you are imagining the attributes of divinity in them. Because if I believe in secular humanism, that I believe through an evolutionary process, which is what humanism believes, that over enough period of time, because we're all basically good people, we'll come to a place where we'll experience heaven or nirvana or the life force or something on our own. And I don't know about you, but when they say technology and science, which is what they believed, If we give science and technology enough time, society will be better. Well, we live in a time period, the 20th century, where technology and science has gotten better and better and better, and it is the the century where there has been more abuse, more uh, horrific genocide than ever before. So science isn't the savior, even though they thought it was going to be, but that is a belief system. And so when Simon Faith says, ultimately, uh, it says, but in fact, unknown to oneself, you are attributing the divinity to him. If God is not the center of your life, something else is, and whether you think it is not God, and and you are actually treating it as God. Whatever, Becky Pipper said this, whatever controls you is God. The one who seeks power is controlled by power. The one who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. But we do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. Either God is the ultimate authority or something else is ruling us. But you are not free. So when John talks to us now in this chapter, and I hope you're following me here because it's key to our understanding that when we look out the world, we're not just dealing with ideologies. Christianity isn't an ideology. Christianity is Father, Son, and Spirit and the historical reality of Jesus coming to us, being born, living the life in the incarnation, dying on the cross, being raised from the dead, and it is he who we follow. So John says this, Verse 5, he says, they're from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. Who are they? They are the critics of Christianity. They are the spirits of this world. They are the people who believe that there's a way to live that will ultimately bring reconciliation and peace and harmony and melody to our life that just isn't true. And so he says they, they have this belief that there are many paths to God. And you know, you have your path, I have my path, everybody. And you've heard the illustration, right? All the blind men get around the elephant. And one touches the ear and says, oh, I know what an elephant is. It's like a big fan. And that's his belief. And well, that's his belief. Another one touches the tail and said, no, no, it's kind of like a long stake. That's what elephants are, are like. And another one grabs a hold of the leg and says, man, it's like a big tree trunk. And another one touches the, the snout and, man, I think it's like a big hose. And everybody wants to say, well, that's their perspective. So they're, therefore, that's their reality. And their reality is their reality. And your reality is, is your reality. So all, let's all get along together. But the reality is nobody knows anything about it unless it knows what an elephant looks like. So we can be blind and touch all the parts, but is that the truth of the elephant? No, the elephant is much bigger than that. 
And so when the, when the world says, let everybody just follow their own path, John is saying, wait a minute, test those spirits, because the distinctive of those spirits is very different than the distinctive of your spirit. So what is it about Christianity that is so different? Because all of the religions of this world have exclusivity. And we've been accused of that. What do you mean Jesus is the only way, the way, the truth, and the life? Certainly that's really narrow thinking. And they're right. It is narrow thinking. But Christianity is exclusive because it is the only all-inclusive way into the presence of the ultimate reality, God. What do I mean by that? You understand what I, what I mean when I say exclusive, right? It means it's my way or the highway. The Buddhists have their eightfold path. The Mormons have theirs. The, the uh, Muslims have theirs. So everybody has their particular way. And it's exclusive. And if you don't do it their way, you don't perform their truth, then you can't get in. So what's our exclusivity? And that's the key. Our exclusivity is grace. Our exclusivity makes what we believe all-inclusive because you don't have to perform truth to get in. Jesus has performed the truth. And it's his truth performed by God himself that is the distinctive. So let me give you three things that, that are key to our exclusivity that makes our exclusivity all-inclusive. The origin of our salvation, the purpose of our salvation, and the method, if you will, of our salvation. So what is the origin of our salvation? Look at verse, verse 2, because I think he says it well. He says it in verse 2 of chapter 4. He says this. This is how you recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. He says this is a differentiator. Because if you look at all the religions in this world, none of them say God has come to us. Matter of fact, most of them are the philosophies of individuals who are human. No other religion that we might look at other than the faith that we say we have, other than this thing we call Christianity, has a God who's coming to us. It's all about us performing a truth to get to him. But he's saying, Jesus Christ has come. Yes, he was born. But John has said over and over again, this incarnation is the very thing the Gnostics were fighting against because they were denying that God had come to us, that God in Christ had come to us, that Jesus in the incarnation, Jesus Christ, God and man, that our God has two natures, all God, all man, he comes to us. And he comes to us and this indeed is the origin of our salvation. It's not our attempt to get to God through performing truth. It is God's attempt to get to us because he loves us. His heart is broken for us. Go back to the garden. Adam and Eve sin, and what do they do? Out of fear, they hide from God. Does God come to them as a resident policeman to put them in jail? 
God comes and loves them and provides for them a promise and a, and a skin of an animal and begins to disseminate, if you will, the mythology in Adam's mind that God with this blue meanie, God initiates by love to us. But he comes in the flesh, which is an interesting second dif- uh, differentiator. Because all religions are helping people attempt to get out of this world to get to heaven. But God is not against the material world. The Gnostics said everything material is evil. We look at our world, our evil, whether it's Eastern religion or Western religion. In Western religion, it's all about moral reformation. If we just, if we just beat our bodies into subjection, we'll be followers of God. And the more we do that, the more self-righteous we get, the more moral we get. So in our morality, we judge secular people who don't have the same value system as us. And we end up being Pharisees instead of followers of Jesus. But God comes first, and God comes in the flesh because our God wants to bring restoration. In other words, think about the material world you live in. You go outside and look at those mountains. Are they not beautiful? You have families. Do you not love hugging them, squeezing them? I don't know how many times people have said, when I die, will I see my loved ones? The reality of this Christianity is not to be ascetics and beat our body into subjection and hopefully I'll die one day and get to heaven and sit on a cloud and play a harp. The reality of our Christianity is heaven comes to us as God has come into the flesh because God wants to restore families. We have an opportunity to experience the reconciliation that God brings through Christ to us, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And the third thing that I think makes us different is this thing called grace. Notice what it says in verse 9 and 10 of this passage and I think this is such a, a beautiful reality here it says that um, where is verse nine ten? this is how God showed his love among us he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him this is love not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins It was not our performing of truth that brought us to him, but it was he who came to us purely for love's sake. And that's the beauty of this exclusivity, if you will, that we call Christianity. Because the differentiator is God has come in the flesh to identify with us in our sin so that we could in resurrection identify with him and his power. That our God has come to be like us, to show us how to live as humans in this world with a trust in God and a removal of anxiety, with a trust in God to love our enemies. And this God has come to us with the assurance of a love and a grace that has brought us salvation for you've been saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast so that we can live in the freedom of the of the power of God's grace in our lives. 
And I'm loved not because of what I do. I'm loved because of the finished work of Christ. And that love, Paul says in verse 14 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, it compels me to live differently. So we worship a man who's hanging on a cross, beaten and abused and spit upon and nailed, who looks out at those perpetrators and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's the life that we live. It's not a life of measuring those who are performing truths that might be like ours or not like ours so we can get on the slippery slope of who's better in our self-righteous Phariseeism. The reality of this Christianity is the power that comes through receiving the grace of God and the reality of the person. So we too are called to what? To fight a culture war? No, we're called to be a cruciform kind of people who take up our cross. And remember, we're following a man who's hanging on the cross and loving his enemies. And through that ministry, through that life, change the world. We're not going to change the world by fighting. We're going to change the world by loving We're going to change the world by being a powerful people in a love that demonstrates something about forgiveness and grace and human flourishing for the purpose of our salvation is God restore this world and to restore our relationships. And that's why John says over and over again, this is how you'll know if you love one another. Because the restoration of this faith that we say we have in this God who has brought reconciliation and restoration and renewal to us is something quite powerful. And if it wasn't true, what are you doing here? But do we believe that? Do we believe that for you and me, that if I live my life in this flesh, with Christ being the dominant and only influence in my life, that I can demonstrate something physically as I truly live on this earth loving those and being what Paul calls us to be, ambassadors of reconciliation. And do I believe that the purpose of the salvation is to bring about human flourishing by the way I care for people, by the way I care for this world I live in, the way that we take care of the earth? Ecology isn't a thought that was created by liberals. Ecology is God's idea because it helps to bring about the world in which God ultimately going to bring about that he demonstrates in the restoration that he provides to us through the resurrection. You see, the resurrection tells us everything about our faith because there is no other religion that has a resurrected Savior. There is no other religion that brings about salvation by grace and not by works. And there is no other religion religion that brings God to us in contrast to us trying to get to God through what we do. And because of that, there is freedom and there is power and there is glory. And because of it, we speak the name of Jesus. And so I read this thing and and, uh, you don't have it on your screen, but but when I read this passage, Martin Lloyd-Jones has a statement about it. And, and let me just read it to you. Uh, he says this. He's reading it in regards to 1 John 4, 9 and 10, and how our viewpoint should be different than the world's. And he says, finally, why has God done this? 
That is to say that he has come and loved us and died for us and did it on the basis of his grace and his desire for our reconciliation with him. Why has God done this? Why has God had anything to do with such creatures as men and women, dead in our trespasses and sins, rebels, hating him, being against him, turning his world into a living hell? Has that not been true if you look at the last hundred years? Why did God ever even look on them, let alone send his only begotten son to them, and even to the cruel death and shame of the cross, making him a sin offering for us? Why has God done this? What led him to do it? What is this love of God, and wherein does this love consist? Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Moved by nothing but his own self-generated love. Though we are what we are, God is love. And his great heart of love, in spite of all that is in us, a move by anything save itself, has done it all. Joe's going to say, I do not know what your feeling is at this moment, but I will tell you what mine is. I cannot understand the hardness of my own heart. How could any of us look at all this and believe it and not be lost in love to God? How can we contemplate these things and not be utterly broken? How can any hatred remain in us? How can we do anything but love one another as we contemplate such amazing love? How can we look at these things and believe them and not feel oddly unworthy and ashamed of ourselves and feel that we owe all and everything to him and that our whole world lies, all the world lives, lives, must be given to express our gratitude, our praise, and our thanksgiving. Oh, let us resolve together to meditate more and more every day upon this amazing love. Look at it in terms of yourselves, in terms of God and what God has done, what Christ has done. Go over these things, study them, read the Bible about them, examine them, go on looking at them, contemplate them until your heart is broken and you feel the love of God possessing you wholly. Love so amazing, so, de- uh, so divine. This love demands my soul, my life, my all. I read this passage and I think we can make a difference by living out our distinctives and not trying to fight the world with fire. Fight the world with the most powerful weapon God has ever given to us. His love. A love, and remember, we worship, we serve, we express a man who is nailed to a cross, looking out at a world, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The deeper we press ourselves into that, the more powerful we become. And the victory that we begin to experience is the one that we've been the recipients of already when we believed and received Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we recognize that that we live in this world and there's all kinds of people wanting to push us out as followers of Christ. And mostly, no, no idea what it means to be a follower of Christ. What it means to be the recipients of a God who loves and forgives. A God who gives their life. 
So God, we come to the communion table and there's no better place to celebrate our God than at the communion table where we're reminded it was not that we first loved him, but that he first loved us and he gave his life for us. His body was broken so that we could experience healing. His blood that was shed so we would have access in life. So God, we think of communion and we so desire to want to fulfill what it is that we're called to. We're called to a Savior who was crucified on our behalf, who was raised from the dead, who was ascended and pours out His Spirit so that the Spirit that is given to us is a Spirit of resurrection, life, and victory. Lord, may we never forget. May we never forget the source of our salvation. It's not us, it's you. May we never forget the purpose of that salvation is that we would care for this world and care for each other in amazing ways. And may we never forget the origin of the salvation, your unconditional grace that that makes us holy people, unique people, and I pray beautiful people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this encourages you to dive deeper into your relationship with God through prayer, scripture, worship, and community. We hope you can join us on Sunday mornings at 9.30. For more information, go to sisterschurch.com. Be blessed, friends.